Let me invite you to turn to John chapter 1. John's Gospel in the first chapter. I probably should begin with a disclaimer, which I do not normally do, but I was actually a little bit reluctant to preach this message. And that's because it doesn't spend a great deal of time just advancing through the text. However, it does address a significant apologetic issue. And it probably feels, it's probably going to feel a little bit more like an apologetics lecture than a sermon. But I really do believe that we should move forward with this. And that's because we claim the Bible has answers to life's ultimate or most important questions. But often we do not understand just how powerful the Bible's answers are because we've never really pursued the alternatives. And so I want to spend some time this morning pursuing some alternatives to the Christian view of the world, all with a purpose to bring it about our attention to the text, ultimately, and to reassure us that we really can trust God's Word. So here in the prologue of John's Gospel, we are greeted with three terms that describe the incarnated Son of God. In the first five verses, Jesus is called the Word, or the Logos. He is called the Life, and He is called the Light. Logos, Life, Light. So verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, last week, we discovered the majesty of the Logos. The Word was with God, indicating Him to be a separate person from God, but simultaneously the Word was God, indicating His full equality with God. Plurality in unity. This is the essence of the Holy Trinity. Distinct persons within the oneness of God. Now, the Word, we are told in verse 3, is the agent of all God's creative acts. All things were made through Him. That means that not a single molecule, not a grain of sand, not a single star in billions of galaxies was made independently of the Word. Your body consists of approximately 100 trillion cells, And those cells contain 100 trillion atoms with electrons that just go whirling around their nucleus. The Word, friends, breathed out every one of those little electrons and those atoms and those cells. And John expresses this truth both positively and negatively in verse 3. Look at it carefully. All things were made through Him. What does that mean? And without Him, not anything made that was made. Let me say that again. And without Him was not anything made that was made. 
Friends, if you just search right through the ends of space, if you just plumb the deepest ocean, if you climb the highest height, you will never find a square millimeter of creation that was not breathed out by the Lagos. No exceptions. Now, in verses 4 and 5, John introduces us to two additional terms, life and light, to describe Jesus. And these two are closely interrelated. Notice verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life is sourced in Jesus. And that life is the light of men. So this morning, what I want to do is really devote our attention to Jesus as the life. Verse 4, in him was life. And we'll come back in the next sermon and talk about Jesus as the light, although I'll conclude today with some application of the relationship between life and light. So friends, what is life? That question reminds me of a comment made by Augustine concerning time. He said, I know what time is until you ask me to define it. Likewise, I know what life is until you ask me to define it. Life is the opposite of being dead. But what's dead if not the opposite of being alive? Aren't we going in circles? Is life self-awareness. Well, certainly self-awareness is a manifestation of life, but are you alive when you're asleep? Are plants alive if they lack self-awareness? How about cells? How about microbial life? At this very moment, there are trillions of processes happening in your body. But they're happening below the level of consciousness or self-awareness. Well, maybe life is sensation. The ability to feel, smell, see, hear, and taste. But again, what happens when you sleep? What happens when you lose one of your five senses? Does that mean your life decreases by one-fifth? What about an embryo that has undeveloped senses as of yet? What about plant life? Well, maybe life is the motion of atoms, the motion of atoms through space. Well, certainly life involves motion, but would you say that electricity is alive? Are machines alive? Is the moon alive because it whirls around the earth? And at what point does life begin? Most scientists believe that atoms are not alive, but you take a hundred trillion of them and whirl them together into a cell, and they say, well, the cell is alive, but who flipped the switch? Turned the whole thing on. But you know that today there really is no scientific consensus as to what life is. Aristotle argued that there are at least three kinds of life. He called them souls. The nutritive soul, he says, is shared by plants, animals, and humans, and it can process nutrition. The sensitive soul is shared by humans and animals, and it can respond to sensation or external stimuli. 
And the rational soul, possessed by humans alone, can reason and solve difficult problems. And I dare say that we agree with Aristotle that there are different grades of life. We typically value human life above animal life, and we value both human and animal life above plant life. But Aristotle merely describes different kinds of life. He does not explain life itself. There really is a mystery at the heart of life that science has never been able to probe. The early Epicureans, including Lucretius, who was widely read in John's day, reduced the whole universe to atoms and space. But they never explained how that whole glittering world of atoms came to life. Back in February 2011, Arizona State University held a symposium of distinguished scientists on the question of life. None of these scientists were believers. The panel included the likes of Richard Dawkins, an outspoken atheist, Craig Venter, who was a leading geneticist, and Paul Davies, whose life work is really devoted to origin studies. And I admit that I watched the panel with sheer delight. None of them could define life. The moderator at one point became visibly frustrated. At one point, he just glared over the top of his glasses at the panelist. He shook his notes and he exclaimed, well, why do we call this the origins of life? Panelists speculated whether computers might one day come alive. They talked about the possibility of life on other planets. They asked whether aliens could have seeded life right here on planet Earth. A very frustrated NASA scientist claimed that evolutionary theory simply requires too much time to evolve the extraordinary complexity of life forms that we have here on planet Earth. But in the end, no one came forward with a definition of life. So what exactly is it? Writing for Forbes, J.V. Chimeri, who holds a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology, discusses the state of affairs currently. Here's what he says. Although biology is the study of life, even biologists don't agree on what life actually is. While scientists have proposed hundreds of ways to define it, none have been widely accepted. And for the general public, a dictionary won't help because definitions will use terms like organisms or animals and plants, synonyms or examples of life, which send you around in circles. Instead of defining the word, textbooks will describe life with a list of half a dozen features based on what it has or what it does, But the list approach is let down by the fact it's easy to find exceptions that don't tick every box on a checklist of features. All that to say, they really do not understand what life is. But at this point, I want us to be very, very cautious because Christians do not have a better definition of what life is. There is mystery in all of life. We do not have a better definition, but friends, here's what we have. We have a better source. That's what sets us apart. Look carefully at the text of verse 4. Here's the source. In Him was life. 
John does not set about to define life, but to describe its source. The source is in him, personal pronoun. And what is the antecedent to the pronoun, the personal pronoun him? The antecedent is the word, the logos. The logos is the source of life. And turn back now to Genesis chapter 1. And let's notice the dynamic relationship between the Word and life. I pointed out last week that Genesis 1 is a recording of the voice of God during the week of creation. So what does that voice say? Would you just notice with me the life that emerges from the voice? In fact, all three categories that Aristotle described emerge from the voice right here in Genesis 1, verse 11, and God said, there's the voice, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. And if you want to know all about that, you can talk to Dr. Whitwell. And I meant to just confirm this with him before I got up here, but I had a conversation with him about three months ago about what life is. And he said, we really don't know. Is that right, Ted? Okay, he says that's right. Oh, good. Okay, if you said no. If you said yes, I'm in big trouble. We know what, okay. Anyway, all right? But notice the source, the source of all that plant life, the voice. Life is sourced in the voice. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. There's the source again. It's the voice. And the voice in verse 24 fills the dry land with creatures. And God said, there's the voice, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And the voice in verse 26 commands human life into existence. Then God said, let us make man in our image. The voice, the logos, is the source of life. The Bible really truly is just crystal clear about the origins of all life. It is sourced in a voice. And with that in mind, let's return to John 1, where that voice is indeed called the logos. And just remember again that we really don't have a better definition of life, but we do have a better source. And because we have a source for life, we are not confronted with an impossible obstacle that confronts the naturalist, the atheist, the Darwinian evolutionist. And I'll come around to that obstacle momentarily. But let's first recognize that the question of what life is does indeed always come back to the issue of source. The biologist sets about to understand what life is Like the panel in Arizona, they always come around with this question, what is the source? Further, all scientists, whether believers or unbelievers, recognize that living things, as we know them today, are sourced in other living things. Life begets life. We all know that. That is true of replicating cells. Insects, plants, fish, trees, zebras, lions, and human beings. Life produces life. 
But here's the problem. You cannot have an infinite regress. You can't have zebras just producing zebras into eternity past. Neither the chicken nor the egg came first. Ultimately, you need something beyond the chicken or the egg. So when I say that it all comes down to source, I don't mean merely the immediate source or the proximate source. I mean the ultimate source. A mother gives birth to living offspring. That's the immediate source. But what is the ultimate source of all life? Did you know, friends, that there are precisely three answers to that question? And I'm talking about the whole of human history, the whole of philosophy, the whole of science. There are only three answers ultimately to the question, what is the source of all life? Just three. Here they are. Number one, all life came from nothing. People do advance this hypothesis. All life came from nothing. Life is sourced in nothing. Number two, all life is sourced in something lifeless. Something impersonal. Pre-Socratic Greek philosophers talked about the possibility of water or earth or air or fire producing life as we know it. Democritus said maybe everything began with atoms. Today they talk about the singularity and the Big Bang. And thirdly, all life is sourced in life. That's it. There are no other possibilities. The third possibility is there's a life. There's a living person who is a source of all life. So again, there are no other options. People these days speculate about life being planted on earth by aliens and such things, but again, that only pushes the question back a step. Now, when I say that naturalists have an impossible obstacle to overcome, what I mean is simply this. A naturalist, under no circumstances whatsoever, can adopt the third option. He simply can't do it. A naturalist, by definition, cannot say that life is ultimately sourced in a living person like God The scientific naturalist worldview just constrains him to accept that life either came from nothing or something lifeless. Naturalism, by definition, requires a material explanation or a nothing explanation. And here's the wonderful irony. Both those options contradict scientific law. There really is enormous and, I think, deliberate confusion these days about what scientific law is. In the traditional understanding, scientific laws are established through repeated observation. And there is no better established law or observation in all nature than this law, life begets life. We know this. We don't know of any exceptions. I talked to a science faculty member on Friday, and I said, are there any exceptions? He said, no, there's no exceptions. Are there any exceptions in the animal kingdom and plant life and human life and cellular life? No, no exceptions. We know this. Life begets life. So when it comes down to it, friends, Christians actually embrace a scientific view of origins. The Christian claim is found right there in verse 4. In him was life. Life is sourced in life. And notice again the personal pronoun him. 
person is the source of life. Now, maybe just for fun, let's pause for a moment, and let's just explore the natural attempt to resolve this issue. I'll not waste too much time on option one. But it is true, as I had occasion to point out, I think three weeks ago, some scientists do try to explain the universe and life from nothing. Frank Close, a physicist, has written a book about the possibility of life from nothing. The book is called A Short History of Nothing. It's substantially longer than you would expect given its subject matter. And here's what he writes. The universe could indeed have come from nothing. He goes on to say there could be many other such universes that have erupted in similar fashion. Or a possible solution is that the universe is a domain in some bigger omniverse. And one popular theory is that there are more dimensions in the universe than we are currently aware of. And friends, this is all just red herring. If you cannot explain one universe from nothing, don't make the problem worse by adding more or making it even bigger. And Close concludes his book by saying, I quote, so for now it is a statement of faith. And that much I agree with. What about the second option? Everything came from something lifeless. And there really are two problems. First of all, no one seems to know what exactly that is. Israeli physicist Gerald Schroeder writes, quote, something, an eternal whatever, predates our universe. This whatever it is has the infinite potential to produce vast universes. Joe Primack, another physicist, writes, there is a mysterious eternal something that may have been everywhere before the Big Bang and may surround our universe forever. It is a state of being called eternal inflation. A few theoretical cosmologists have thought a lot about what eternal inflation must be like, that is, if it exists. And let's not just single out the modern physicist. Here is an ancient Taoist text that tries to explain the universe. Are you ready for this? Here we go. There was something containing all before heaven and earth, it exists, tranquil O, incorporeal O. Alone it stands and does not change. It goes everywhere and is not hindered. It can thereby become the universe's mother. I know not its name. I characterize it by calling it the way. Forced to make a name for it, I call it the great. Great I call the elusive. The elusive I call the far, the far I call the returning. That's it. What's up with that? Friends, no one knows what this lifeless, impersonal thing is that gave rise to the universe. And they assume that Christians believe in fables. We have scientific law on our side. Life begets life. But there is a further problem still, and it's this. How does something lifeless account for all the mysterious character of life as we know it today? What are human emotions? 
human values, human morals? What does it mean to have a sense of destiny, to have a sense of purpose in life if we all come from and return to lifelessness? Gerald Schroeder, again, illustrates the problem. He says, The mystery that remains in the sunset is the riddle of why and how a mixture of seemingly inert, unthinking atoms of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and several other varieties can produce humans capable of having the subjective experience we refer to as beauty. You love beauty. Where does that come from? From lifelessness? Or the love that would have us kiss our kids goodnight? Does that all come from lifelessness? And he says, science is no closer to answering those questions today than it was a century ago. The answer that many scientists give to this issue is logical but perfectly absurd. Follow this. If life is sourced in lifelessness then life itself is ultimately an illusion. That is to say that consciousness is an illusion. Oxford psychologist Nicholas Humphrey writes, our starting assumption as scientists ought to be that on some level consciousness has to be an illusion. An illusion. The reason is obvious. If nothing in the physical world can have the features that consciousness seems to have, then consciousness cannot exist as a thing in the physical world. You're you're not even self-aware. This is what happens when you source yourself in lifelessness. That's what you get when you reject John 1 and verse 4. Look at it again. In him was life. You have nowhere else to go, friends, but lifelessness. I mean, where are you going to turn? For Humphrey... In in unconsciousness is life. Where are you going to go? And friends, I really am not just choosing marginal examples. Here is Francis Crick, the famous co-discoverer of the double helix structure of the DNA molecule. He writes, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. As Lewis Carroll's Alice might have phrased, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. These scientists approach life from the standard Darwinian materialistic worldview. And this worldview is being taught in college classrooms all over our country. There is no more to your existence than the atoms that compose your body. And if individual atoms don't have consciousness, then your whole collection of atoms cannot have consciousness. Atheist philosopher Daniel Dennett writes, we are descended from robots and composed of robots. And all the intentionality we enjoy is derived from the more fundamental intentionality of these billions of crude intentional systems. And friends, if that's your worldview, like the worldview of many intellectuals all across this country, then life ultimately has no meaning. It really has no value. It has no purpose. Life is sourced in lifelessness, and that's where we're all returning to. And this is what Albert Einstein wrote, who held the Darwinian worldview. He said, strange is our situation here upon earth. Each of us comes for a short time 
not knowing why. I do not believe we can have any freedom at all in the philosophical sense. He means that we're just atoms in motion. To ponder interminably over the reason for one's own existence or the meaning of life in general seems to me, from an objective point of view, to be sheer folly. I have never belonged wholeheartedly to country or state, to my circle of friends, or even to my own family. The wish to withdraw into myself increases with the years. Neither can I believe that the individual survives the death of the body. Well, here's what's wonderful, friends. We have the authority of science to reject this nonsense. Science tells us that life begets life. We don't know of any exception to living things that are not sourced in life. Life is sourced in life. But friends, we have something even more satisfactory than science itself. We have the Logos. We have the living Word of the Creator. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He, a person, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When there are no other answers, don't be afraid of the only viable answer. It's impossible to begin, in the beginning was nothing. That doesn't work. It's impossible to begin, in the beginning was lifelessness. That doesn't work. In the beginning was the Word. In Him, verse 4, was life. And keep reading now and notice what the life brings to us. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life brings us light. What is the connection between life and light? Well, I'm going to get into this a great deal more next time. But I think we do at this point recognize that life, or rather light, is a universal symbol for understanding, for clarity, for dispelling ignorance. It's like when the light comes on, I understand. And really, hasn't this whole sermon just illustrated the point that people are out there just walking in darkness? They're walking in darkness. There is no doubt that the scientists and philosophers that I've named in this sermon are really brilliant thinkers. Their IQ would certainly pass mine. Albert Einstein's name is synonymous with genius. Friends, I have cited university professors with long resumes and distinguished careers, and they are image bearers of God with extraordinary gifting. But they are stumbling around in the darkness. They use their brilliance in clever ways to prove we don't need light. And we are not amused. If you simply accept certain truths, your whole world just becomes flooded with light. 
Think of how simple a truth is this. In him was life. Everything becomes suddenly clear when you just embrace that. Charles Wesley just immortalized this truth in his triumphant hymn, And Can It Be? You know these words? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Christianity, friends, has comprehensive explanatory power. It just takes a light and throws it into the dark cave of our world. Now, in conclusion this morning, I want us to really drive this home with a point of application. And let's do so by turning to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And here the Apostle Paul uses the image of light. But he is going to take that light and he is going to shine it in a specific direction. And Jesus is the source of all life. And when Jesus comes into the world, the light guides all men. Okay, but are you ready for this? There is a catch. There is a catch. And maybe you're just maybe, maybe this morning you're you're drawn to the light. Maybe this is the first time you've even heard any anybody even talk about this kind of thing. I understand that. There is a catch. If you are going to come into the light, your sin will be exposed. All right, there's only one option. You have to come to the life source. That life source is the light, but when you come into the light, guess what happens? Your sin will be exposed. Let's read verses 3 through 13 of Ephesians 5. But as we do, look for two sins that we are all prone to. And I'll give you a hint. They're right there in verse 3. And then notice how Paul is going to take the light and he is going to shine it on those sins. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers or partners with them. For at one time, notice this, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of life, of light, is found 
and all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. All your sin becomes visible in the light. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's the word, shining on you. So again, what are those two categories of sin? Number one, Paul speaks of sexual sin, sexual immorality, even crude joking and foolish talking. Worldly humor, friends, just gets twisted constantly in the direction of sex. You know that. Coarse conversation inevitably turns towards sex. Our minds, if we do not just protect them, are just drawn like a magnet toward inappropriate sexuality. We know that. Friends, I can remember people that I worked with 25 years ago. 25 years ago. And somehow crude comments that they made on a single occasion have gotten lodged in the fallen crevices of my brain. Our flesh is just drawn to sensuality. The second sin that Paul speaks of in verse 3 is covetousness, which is idolatry. Our culture is the wealthiest in all of human history and quite possibly the most covetous. How is it that people simultaneously have so much material abundance and still have massive credit card debt? It makes no sense. The more they have, the more it just fuels their covetousness. The eye is just never satisfied. You better get a grip on that early on. We are consumed with vanity fair all around us. And notice in verse 8 how Paul describes a culture of sexuality and covetousness as darkness. Now, when you live that way, indulging in sexuality and covetousness, friends, you were darkness. But we are called by the source of all light, all life, to just come right out of the darkness and begin walking in the light. We are called in verse 10 to exercise discernment. Just figure out what pleases the Lord and go do it. In verse 11, do not have anything whatsoever to do with the darkness. There is just, friends, there's just nothing there for you. It's empty, so rather expose it. This is the calling of the Christian. Verse 14, awake, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There is nothing darker than a grave But that, friends, is precisely where the world lives. They live in death, dead in their trespasses and sins. And God has called us out of the grave. Come, walk in the light of the noonday sun. But be aware that when you do, you will have to let Christ just expose you to His light. And when that happens... You must repent, and you must be baptized. 